joy to come together on uh, Sundays to worship the Lord, to join our minds, our hearts, our voices together in uh, worshiping Him and in connecting with one another. I want to invite you to take a moment to share a word of greeting with others who are here this morning in worship. There is an insert in your bulletin about Children's Church. Uh, we need some help with Children's Church over the course of the summer. Uh, after the service, you can sign up in the back corner there of the foyer. And uh, Emily will be back there to answer questions for you and uh, to help you uh, in signing up. We appreciate you taking this opportunity to work with our little ones. It's a great, uh, great chance to connect in their lives, to help them know a little bit more about Jesus, to sense the love of the church. And we appreciate your support and in being involved in children's church ministry. Also, we've, as we've done the past few years, we are setting aside some time to pray for our graduates, college and high school graduates. Uh, beginning Tuesday morning at 6, uh, you can begin signing up to come to the prayer room. And for the next 36 hours, we'll be ending Wednesday afternoon or evening at 6. Uh, we want to support our graduates, pray for them. We'll have a list of names of the graduates. And um, we, will give, we have some prayer guides to help you as well. So uh, we'd love to fill up those 36 hours. You can sign up on the other side of the foyer this morning as well or anytime online as uh, we pray together asking God's grace on those who are graduating and moving into the next stage of their lives. This time we're going to ask the ushers to come to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Surety stands before the throne. 
we pray together, if you want to come to the altar and offer your prayers, please join me. Otherwise, please be seated. Father, we come today giving thanks for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for Christ's willingness, his love that that brought him into this world. And eventually to go to the cross, but to reveal your great power in the resurrection and to remind us of your great promise as he prepares to return, to appear, that we might know eternal life. Father, this morning we come with grateful hearts for all that you have done for us and are doing for this world of yours. Father, we are also burdened about this world. We, we think today of the people in Nepal who are trying to recover from the devastating earthquakes this week. Hundreds and hundreds of people have lost their lives. This whole nation is grieving and we grieve with them. We pray, Father, for your healing grace upon this nation, the people, every individual. And we pray that somehow your church, your people would be a means of comfort in this time of great sorrow and loss. Father, we pray for your church around the world. We think of the ministry of your church in Liberia. We thank you that the Ebola virus is being contained and is ceased even there. We pray, Father, that you will continue to bless the ministry of that Alan and Sherry Shea have and of the Elwa radio station and we thank you for the good things that are happening there and we pray that you will continue to bless everyone involved and that this station as it broadcasts the good news that you will use this to change lives Father we pray for the church Nigeria that is still recovering from the recent attack on Garissa University Lord, our our hearts grieve for the people who are trying to deal with this horrific crisis. We pray that you will bring healing in every way to the survivors. We pray that you will bring peace in the midst of violence and war and hatred. Father, we pray that you will unleash your spirit of love and grace and healing and restoration. Lord, we pray for the needs that we represent here. We ask for your mercy upon all who are grieving today. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health concerns. And and we we think of Derek Mastin and Beulah Avery, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman. We pray for Beverett and Micah Christensen, Linda Roth and Dick Gould. Tim Nichols, Isla Shea, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who may be on our minds today. We pray for your continued healing in each of them. Father, we thank you for your generous blessings in our lives. We come to you today asking for your grace to transform us, to change us, to heal us, to give us a deeper faith in you and to be a presence for you in this needy world. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our risen King, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands, and put my finger on those scars, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. Do you believe because you see me? How happy are those who believe without seeing me? In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
Please be seated. In one way or another, to be human is to wrestle with doubts. I mean, we all wrestle with doubts. We wrestle to believe things that we find really difficult to believe. It, it starts when we are little. I mean, if you hang around little children much... You know one of their favorite questions, if not the favorite question, is why? Yeah, but why? I'm, I'm really getting excited um, in the next few months. Now, it's going to take longer than that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're about a month or so away from becoming grandparents. And we're really excited about that. And I can't wait to hear, why, Grandpa, Why? Now, I'm sure I'll get tired of it after a while, but right now, from this side of it, it sounds pretty exciting. But it's just a question we ask, why, why, why? We, we, we are always wanting to know an answer to the things that we find hard to understand. And when we come to this story that we looked at this morning and from the Gospel of John, chapter 20... We have a sense of, of doubt in the midst of this story that we have probably tended to interpret as purely negative, but I'm not sure it's only that. Now, here, you know, at the beginning of John 20, talks about Jesus rising from the dead. It's that first Easter morning. Mary goes to the tomb. Rock, the stone's been rolled away. Disciples come. They, they go back, and that night Jesus appears to them. And John tells us that Thomas wasn't there for whatever reason. A week, and, he, and Thomas says, I don't believe it. Until I, until I see the scars and touch them, I'm not going to believe. A week later, they're all together again. And John paints the scene so carefully. He wants us to, to get a sense that they're in the same place, the same situation. Every, all the details seem to be the same, except now Thomas is there. And Jesus appears to them again, and he goes to Thomas and says, here I am. Now, we have a tendency to, history's had a tendency to be pretty tough on Thomas. All the other disciples believe, but Thomas doesn't. In fact, we call him Doubting Thomas. But the reality is, the only reason the other disciples believe is because Jesus appears to them. Thomas is the only one who, doesn't, who isn't there, who has to believe because they tell him. All the other disciples, they get to see Jesus, and of course they're going to believe. So I'm not sure it's fair to Thomas to say, you know, he, he doubts and the others don't. I have a feeling they're all wrestling with doubts. They're all wrestling to come to grips with this thing. I, I'm, I would tend to disagree with how the, the video portrays the scene... I think once Jesus is done talking to Thomas and they sit down, I think, I, I don't think he just touches their shoulders. I think they're embracing, they're hugging. That They still are trying to wrestle with the truth that the Jesus who they saw crucified and buried is now alive. Who wouldn't continue to wrestle with that for a while? But the minute Thomas recognizes that it's Jesus... He makes this amazing declaration, my Lord and my God. It's really the the first time that anyone has actually addressed Jesus as God. It's an amazing declaration. John, John may be late to the party, but he's now all engaged. He is fully in. He is ready to go to worship, to, to, to embrace whatever Jesus wants to do. He, you, can, you can sense it as you see his response. I, I didn't understand it. I'm not sure I get it yet. But this is Jesus, and I am all in with him. And Jesus says to him, this is awesome. 
I think Jesus is, is pleased when anybody believes. When anybody takes a step of faith, Jesus is thrilled. For whatever reason, whatever circumstance, if someone takes a step of faith, Jesus is thrilled about it. But in this moment, he says to Thomas, I'm so glad that you believe. But let me just tell you, people who have seen and believe are blessed. There's been a lot of discussion about what exactly Jesus means. I don't think Jesus is saying you get a lot more blessing if you believe without seeing me. I don't think Jesus is saying if you have to, if you have, to have things proven to you, if you have to study, if, if you have to engage in apologetics before you'll believe, then something's wrong with you. I don't think Jesus is, is denigrating, coming to grips with things with our minds and wrestling with it at all. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he is saying that it isn't going to be very long before a, a new generation of people is going to come along who will never see Jesus the way they see Jesus. And those people are also going to be blessed. I think he may be saying... The, the more we're able to trust Jesus simply because it's Jesus, the more we will experience the closeness of Jesus and the blessing of Jesus and the grace of Jesus in our lives. Now, when he says they will be blessed, there's, again, a lot of theories about what that means. People, we tend to think that blessing means something material. You can find people all over the world who will say, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich. You're, you're going to have all kinds of things. Your, your life is going to be perfect. We don't, that's not what Jesus is saying. When you get to the end of this section, and it's almost a sense of the end of the book, and then you get chapter 21, which feels like a, an appendix or an addendum onto the end of the, of the book. But he gets to the end of it and he says... Jesus did all kinds of miracles. And the point of, of writing, John says, the reason I've told you what I've told you, the reason I've written these things to you is because I want you to believe because in believing you have life in his name. I think the ultimate blessing of Jesus on people who believe is life. And it doesn't just mean eternal life, though that's a part of it. I think it's life now. I think it is experiencing the fullness of God in a person's life now. It is transformation. It's being set free from the bondage of sin now. It's being set free to live as we were created to live now. It's experiencing the joy of Christ now. It is being so filled with the presence and the life of Jesus that we who are dead in our sins actually come alive. And we, are, we become the people we were created to become. To know the joy and the peace and the love and the grace of Christ now. When you think about experiencing that, I think there is a difference between being transformed, being changed, and knowing that we are transformed and changed. John Wesley felt so strongly about that, the idea of, of knowing that God has done something in our lives, that he, he said one of the hinge points of his the whole theological system was the witness of the Spirit. He said it was, it's essential, it's, it's so important to have the witness of the Spirit that we know the Spirit speaks into our hearts and, and tells us that we are different, that we are children of God. And it is tremendous that we become children of God. But what's even more tremendous is that when we begin to understand what it means to be children of God. That we begin to that we we begin to wrap our minds around the truth that we are new creations, as Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. That we have been set free, and that we can live in that freedom. 
and the joy and the blessing of Christ. I mentioned a few weeks ago about uh, the rural Presbyterian church in northeast India. And that this is a church that is, is for the, the Dalit people, the untouchables of India. And even though the whole class structure has technically been outlawed by the government, it seems as though the, the majority of people continue to practice it. And this group of people, these untouchables, the lowest of the low in, in the great nation of India are, are treated with contempt. There are so many things that they are not allowed to do. Their lives are lived on the margins. And this church is for them and by them. And it is connected to them. There's a law in, in India that says if you're born as a part of the untouchable class, then you have to, if you have children, you have to name them something derogatory. Dumb, stupid, ugly. The names have to mean that. And so what this church has done is people come to faith in Christ. They bring them up front and they give them a new name. Names that mean things like beautiful, lovely, precious, set free, transformed. And this church has... has gotten a a glimpse of of what I think God wants to do for us is what what he wants our faith in him to lead us to is to know that we are children of God that we are not who we used to be yeah we still struggle with stuff yes we still wrestle with sin yes we, we have a long ways to go on the journey but in the midst of the journey we are new people we are actually children of God And he's working in us, he's changing us, and he's setting us free. And we need to live in that. And Jesus is saying, people who have faith in me, people who trust in me, begin to understand that. It is faith in Jesus that brings us to this blessed life. And to have faith in Jesus, I think, one of the things he's saying to Thomas is... Are you willing to trust me even when you can't see me? Are you willing to believe that I am present with you, that I am at work, that I, the risen Christ, have conquered all of the things of this world, that I've done that even when you can't see it the way you want to? Can we look out across the landscape of the world with everything that's happening in the world. And the enemies of Christ seemingly having great power and believe that the risen Christ is still worth following. When tragedies take place in our lives and in this world and we wonder about where Jesus is, can we still believe That he is trustworthy, even when we're not sure we see him. It is this this kind of faith that, that lets Jesus be who he says he is and work in the ways that he knows is best, even if those ways look different than how we want him to work and how we would work if we were in charge. For many years, Calvin Miller was pastor uh, of a church in in, uh, the Midwest, and then he became a seminary professor. He died a couple of years ago, but I've read a number of his books. I've listened to a number of his sermons, and I heard him tell a story about when he, he said it was 1947, he was about 10 years old, and he said he had this, this first crisis of his faith. He said during that summer, he was, he actually grew up in a Western Methodist church, and, and he was going to vacation Bible school that summer. And he said that there were two things that sort of came together that created this crisis of faith. One of them was vacation Bible school. And he would go every day and they would sing songs about Jesus. And he, would, and, he, and, he, and he made little flannel graph Jesus. Now, for some of you, you have no idea what that is. Others of us grew up on flannel graph, right? Little board with the, the little fuzzy pictures of Jesus and the disciples and sheep and all of those things with the backgrounds on it. 
He said he, he had this flannel graph Jesus that he made in vacation Bible school. The other event that took place was that summer was that his grandmother, who would live with his family, I guess for lack of a better term, lost her mind. And one of the things that happened to her when she lost her mind is she began to steal things from around the house and take them to her room and lock them inside of a trunk that she had in her room. And when she put them in the trunk and closed the lid and said, mine, mine, mine. And one day when he came home from vacation Bible school, this little flannel Jesus, flannel graph Jesus, his grandmother stole this flannel graph Jesus and locked him up in this trunk and said, mine, mine, mine. He didn't understand why anyone would want to steal a flannel graph Jesus and lock him in a trunk. He said, and then later I went to seminary and I began to understand how often we want to lock Jesus in our trunks. How many times we want to, to shape Jesus in our image and we get him just the way we want him and let's put him away and let's lock him in the trunk because that way we can control him and manage him. As opposed to the Jesus that appears to Thomas, who can walk through locked doors, who can do miraculous things, who is uncontrollable, unmanageable, and the only way to respond to him is to trust him. And to believe that he is who he says he is. And that what he is doing is always right and perfect and good. And even when we don't think he's got things in control. To trust and believe that he does. Even when we can't see. But I'm convinced it's not just enough to in a sense, let Jesus be who he says he is and operate in the world the way he knows is right. It is not just letting that happen. There is this trust that says, I want that to happen. I want all of my ways of shaping Jesus in my image to be shattered so that the God I trust, the Jesus whom I'm following, is who he says he is. I want that. It's a desire of my heart. Even if I don't understand it, even if I'm wrestling with it, even if I struggle with doubt sometimes, that's what I want. See, sometimes the problem isn't doubt. I don't, I don't think doubt is always wrong. Often doubt leads us to questions, which leads us to solutions. I mean, I don't think Jesus is afraid of our doubts. Thomas is simply saying to the disciples, I don't believe this yet, so I'm not going to act like I do. He's just being honest. And quite frankly, I think Jesus can do things with us if we're honest about our doubts. I think he would much rather have us be honest about our doubts than to fake belief. Than to act like we believe, but not really. To paint a good picture, to put up a facade of belief, but deep inside, that's not anything that we want. We look at the religious leaders who reject Jesus. It's not because they doubt. It's not because they have questions and they're wrestling with this, thing, this message that Jesus brings. They reject Jesus because they know exactly what he's saying. He's saying exactly what God has said through the centuries. And they didn't like it then and they don't like it now. And they don't want it. It's the difference between the disciples in the garden when the soldiers come and they run in fear for their lives as opposed to the religious leaders who come and arrest Jesus knowing full well what's happening. I mean, the disciples are just afraid. They don't know what to do, so they run. The religious leaders know exactly what they're doing. It's not a, for them, it's not really a matter of doubt. It's rejection. And Jesus, Jesus can work with us if our doubts are honest, if we're really wrestling with the truth. But there's not a whole lot he can do when we just out and out reject any desire for who he is and for what he wants to do in our lives and 
in our world. It's the difference between, I think it's Robert Winberg who says in his book, it's the difference between um, painful and, and reluctant doubt on one hand, and on the other hand, belligerent and enthusiastic doubt. It's one thing to, to have the kind of doubt that we, we wish we didn't doubt. And we're wrestling to, to work through our doubts. And it pains us to doubt, but, but it's the honest truth. And, and we're trying to get through it versus being belligerent and enthusiastic about our doubts and rejecting God. And I think that in many ways, for many of us, our struggle is going to come down to believing that the way of the risen Christ is the way of blessing, as the way of life. That the pathway Jesus takes to become our, our Lord, our Redeemer, to become the risen Christ is somehow we have to come to grips with that. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus appears to to the disciples and he identifies himself. It's not by his facial features. It's not by the tone of his voice. It's not by miracles he performs. He doesn't turn water into wine or rocks into bread. He identifies himself by his scars. And he says to them, and I think he's saying to us, the pathway to blessing It's the pathway of scars. It's the pathway of surrender. It's the pathway of of dying to ourselves. It's the pathway of of being willing to give our lives to him. Not because we are forced to, not because we have no other options left, but because we realize this is the way to life. And we've come to realize that the way of the cross is not an aberration. It is the call on every person who wants to follow Jesus. And the way to life and the way to to being a presence for Christ in the world is going to be the way that Christ went to life and became a presence in the world. Not through power, not through vengeance and wrath, but through vulnerability and love and truth and a willingness to surrender our lives to God. And as we come to this table this morning, this table that, that brings us face to face with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the call of Jesus on our lives, as we come to this table, what looks like a hardship to give up ourselves, Jesus says, is joy, is life, it's good. You know, I have often interpreted this story negatively. That Jesus says to Thomas, in essence, come on, Thomas, really? Come on. How can you be so dense? Come on, believe. I'm, almost a sense of exasperation in Jesus. But what if... What if that's not the right way to interpret it? What if the right way to interpret it is Jesus saying to Thomas, come on, Thomas, believe. You can do it. I know you have it in you. I know you want to. I want to fill you with life. I want you to know the fullness of who I am. Come on, Thomas, believe. I think that's what he's saying to all of us. And as we come to this table, wherever you may happen to be on the continuum of faith that we all journey, hear Christ's invitation and believe. Hear his invitation to come, believe, and be blessed. Gracious Father, we thank you 
for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you that, that the way of the cross is the way of life. And we pray that you will give us today hope in our doubts and faith and trust to believe that the way of Christ really is the way of life, what we all yearn for. Father, we pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray that it will be food for our thirsty, hungry souls. And that as we come, even in our struggle, give us a want to, to believe and to trust and to lay ourselves before you and to find the blessing of your life. We pray this, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, Do it in remembrance of me. We are receiving communion this morning by the mode of intinction. This means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar's always open if you want to stay and pray. I do have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you would like those, just let me know as as you come up. And we have trays of cups and bread and we can serve you in your seat if you prefer just let the usher know as your role is released we practice open communion to Wesleyan Church this might be the first time you've, you've ever worshipped here but if you come today with your heart open to Christ with the desire in your heart to believe and to trust then come receive these gifts from our gracious loving Heavenly Father
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.